Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1097. Head over to ID10T.com. We've just put some new vintage items in the shop um, and uh, all sorts of stuff. So go and visit because we're, as I say, uh, we are constantly putting up new stuff and sign up for our email list while you're there so that we can inform you of said cool vintage stuff. Uh, so there you go, id10t.com. Thank you so much for uh, letting me <laughs> self-promote. Oh, I'm getting better at it. I'm really getting more comfortable with it. I'm trying. Uh, but let's talk about you. Enough about me. This is from the ID10T community. Corkboard events at ID10T.com. Like Michael who writes, I wrote a nerdy lit RPG book and just self-published it this week on Amazon. Uh, it's available on Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, and paperback on demand. Here's this sort of the log line in the bleak. Now, I'm going to do, Michael, I'm going to do the voice. I'm going to do the voice if it, as if it were like an, like an ad. In the bleak, not too distant future, when most people who can have fled online to the virtual reality OVR world online, Zachary Z. Jones was never going to be able to afford to become a player until he was arrested after committing a crime to save his mother's life and included in the inmate player program. Even without perception filters to limit his pain, it was better than the alternative sentences. He has the opportunity to earn more money in a five-year sentence than he could have in his entire life as a hospital janitor. Dive into Z, locked in, book one of OVR World Online, and find out. Search Justin Monroe or Z-E-E, locked in, on Amazon now. <coughs> you know, Michael, I hope you appreciate that uh, I, uh, <laughs> I just shredded my voice, to, uh, but I had to do it that way. It just needed to be done. In the voiceover way. So, well done. Congratulations on, on self-publishing and getting that out there. Nice work. Events at ID10T.com is how you share your thing with the ID10T community corkboard. This episode is John Cleese, who is returning to the podcast, making his second appearance on the podcast. Um, and uh, John's written a book called Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide. And uh, and it is. It's a short and cheerful guide about creativity. The book is, it's only 100 pages, but it's a small book. So it's really like, I don't know, 70 pages of a regular size book, whatever that is. But uh, it's a it's a quick read and uh, it's it's just concise and to the point about how to create an environment to foster your own creativity, how to set the table to, uh, for, for, for your mind to be able to uh, produce the kind of creative results that you're seeking. And so um, I really enjoyed this book because I'm always trying to figure out how to, <laughs> how to squeeze out the creativity. Uh, and I was really excited to talk about it because I just thought, hey, you know, when are you going to have another opportunity to talk to a founding member of Monty Python about the creative process, uh, which for me also happens to be writing. So um, this was, uh, uh, this was really fun. And I took a lot of notes <laughs> when I read the book, like a college student. And he actually notices 
notices most of the way through the podcast. He's like, what are you looking at? And I'm like, uh, I took a lot of notes because I wanted to remember a lot of stuff. And also I have questions. And, you know, normally that's not something I do. Normally the podcast is, uh, you know, it's like an unstructured conversation. It kind of goes wherever it goes. But but this time uh, I was like, I really want to learn. I really I want to feel more creative. I mean, look, as much as I constantly tell you to just make a thing uh, on this podcast, you know, make a thing. Just go out and do the thing. Just show up. Just, you know, d- d- do something creative every day. Just consistency. But, you know, I still struggle with that. And I, when I'm telling you that, I'm probably almost definitely also telling me that so I remember to do it as well uh, because, you know, the creative process is hard. It's hard. And it's not like I feel creative all the time or most, even most of the time, I'm, but I'm forever a student and always looking for things to learn. And I just think, you know, anything you can pick up that you didn't know before helps you on your lifelong creative journey and it has value. So thank you to John for being very patient with all of my notes. Thank you for being very patient with this long ass intro. Uh, Creativity, a short and cheerful guide is available wherever books are sold. And now let us begin the ID10D podcast number 1097 with Mr. John Cleese. Initiating ID10D protocol. Hardwick. Yes, sir. Yes, was sir. Was a famous English actor in the thirties, right? Cedric. Cedric. Yeah, I, I think we're probably all descended from the same genes. That when my ancestors came over and became hillbillies, they dropped the e at the end. Oh, I see. <laughs> where, you, where were you from, your ancestors? Um, I'm fairly certain. I've done I've done the ancestry dot com. Oh yeah. Fairly, yeah, and. Uh, I'm fairly certain they were from Northern England and Scotland mainly. Uh, and then as, as a lot of those people did, they kind of moved to the mountainous kind of Appalachian regions because I think it resembled a lot of their geography. And, uh, and then they were just hillbillies for generations. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I've been working with a hillbilly. <laughs> He's a very, very successful action movie writer. Oh, that's and he, he's called Kevin Bernhardt. And he was from Philadelphia, well, from Pennsylvania. Yeah. And you wouldn't guess he was hillbilly now. You'd think he was a Hollywood writer, but it's fascinating to hear him talking about where, where he grew up, you know? That's great. Very yeah, good. it's a, it's 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 a very interesting, you know, it's a very interesting part of the country. It's a very interesting sort of cultural evolution from that. I think it really was like a lot of Scottish and a lot of Scots and a lot of Irish. You know, they just kind of settled in these kind of craggy mountainous regions, and uh, and and, and that, that's where we got the hillbillies. Maybe they wanted to build up their own community rather than slot themselves into someone else's. It's very possible. But even if you look at the music, like the bluegrass music that evolved from that region is very much kind of, it feels like it's Irish folk music. Like it's got that same yes, kind it of... Yes, does. Yes, you're right. You're yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, I read your book and it was fantastic. How it's fantastic. long did it take you, Chris? It, 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 there's no reason for anyone to not read it. It's, it's short. <laughs> it's, it's simple. It's informative. Like it's... Good. You know... You could have written like 400 pages with a lot of extra stuff, but even as you say in the book, go back and make edits. And it's it's just the, it's the perfect length. I'm so glad you say that because people are always asking uh, when I see the criticisms of Amazon, it's, it was that the book wasn't big enough. They didn't get their money's worth. <laughs> and uh, that was the whole point of the book because it's very easy uh, to write a 300-page book about creativity. But at the end of it, you'll retain some ideas, but it won't make you more creative. 
whereas this was written on the you know that nice saying i think it was um i think it was uh not more so it was um God, this is ridiculous. Mark Twain, who said, I'm sorry this is such a long letter, but I didn't have time to write a shorter one. You know, <laughs> everyone argues about who said that the first time, but it's brilliant because if you really think about something, if you really think about it, you can start boiling it down rather than just adding to it. And I, I claim that I had the time to write a shorter book. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, because... It, you know, the first time I've written one book and the first time I wrote it, I wrote the first draft and I thought that wasn't so hard at all. And then I got back the notes and went, ah, shit, now I got to think about everything I wrote. Oh, man. And then the process became excruciating. Oh, excruciating? The editing process of like having to... Yeah. down and think about everything that you wrote and really, you know. It's quite hard work, but it doesn't make me anxious. I mean, if I'm writing a movie script, there's, uh, I'm always a bit anxious thinking, is this actually any good? And is this really funny? And then I get to a certain point when I think it's good enough. Right. And then something in me relaxes. And then the next stage, which is making it better, is a different business. It's much more fun. There's no anxiety attached. Whereas at the beginning, I find there is. I mean, not at the very beginning, because at the beginning, you don't know what it is, and you're just having ideas. Like at the moment, I'm writing a treatment for a light comedy about cannibalism. And uh, it's called it's called Yummy. And it's outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I've stood at the point of really enjoying that and doing what I always do, which is to ask, tell, tell other people about it, because it's amazing how people will contribute. I said to my wife, who knows the plot vaguely, I said, where does he hide when they're all looking for him in this big house? And she paused, I think, probably 10 seconds. She said, inside the grandfather clock. Oh, wow. Absolutely brilliant. So <laughs> that's fantastic. I mean, you know, when you're writing comedy, like comedy writing is fun. Yeah. But I think about like other forms of writing. If you're writing heavy drama, if you're writing something, you know, historical. Yeah. I mean, that's not particularly what, my what calling. So I, can't, I think about that. And I go, well, where's the fun in like when it's really heavy and dense? But with comedy, at least like the the jokes kind of drive. Yeah, that's a, you're right, provided you're not too frightened about whether people are going to laugh. But when you wrote, you said you wrote a book, what was it about? What kind of a book? Oh, it was, it was, it was just sort of an autobiographical book about, um, it was kind of like a self-help book. It wasn't like a, it wasn't so much like a do this. It's like, I got sober 17 years ago. And so it was like, oh, this is sort of like a, this is like a how-to guide. This is what I did. If anything helps you, great. So it's sort of like a comedy autobiography book about obsessive thinking, basically. Really? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. My daughter, I'm so proud of her, is sober. I think it's 13 years now. It's oh, fantastic. <laughs> if they keep clock, if the clock keeps clocking up more and more years, but it's about 13 years. Now. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think that's great because that was the most important thing she had to do. And she was magnificent. Her therapist said to her in Arizona, I've never met anyone who was so determined to make this work. Oh, that's great. Uh, and I'm she's really... very funny. Do you know her? Um, I, a... Yes, I actually. Camilla Cleese? Yes, I, I, I used to host a show, a comedy panel show on Comedy Central, and she was on it once called At Midnight. And she was she was a panelist on once and was super funny. Yeah, she's very funny and, and naughty, you know, in that Cleese way that she says things that are going to rub some people up. <laughs> I, I, I took a ton of notes about your book, by the way, oh. because I, this is a topic I, like, the creative process is fascinating to me because I think when we're young, we have this romantic idea that you are just struck by inspiration and, you know, like the, the finger of God just lightly touches your frontal lobe. And then all of a sudden the skies open up and you have this brilliant, perfectly formed idea. That's sort of like that, that kind of Mozart, you know, Salieri saying it's as if he's dictating from the angels. 
And sounds then, a bit like sounds a bit like Terry Gilliam to me. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I can't stand is directors with a vision. You know, so no, no, don't have a vision. Just get a script you like and cooperate with people who know what they're doing. And you see what I mean? This Absolutely. whole idea, the auteur um, <laughs> thing, you know, it's just taken so far. I remember some I saw someone, you made a second film, and it said a uh, um, uh, a, a Jim Wallaby film, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Films. Everyone say, "Oh my God, it's a Jim Wallaby film." <laughs> Can't stand that crap. What I like is just playing around, and I like playing with people. If I was directing, and I sometimes direct actors, I said, "I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to play." I'm going to make a suggestion, see what you think. Does it feel good to you? I'm not going right. to tell you to do X, but I, if I say to you, what do you think about X? You might say, no way, or you might say, ooh, I quite like that. You see what I mean? So it's a, it's a totally cooperative, and it's a using the intelligence of everyone around instead of just the director's intelligence. Well, also because it, you know, when you get any different group of people together, and I know you've written with a lot of different people, you you form a different, there's a different chemical bond that yeah. happens and everyone kind of brings, everyone sort of brings a different element and the the complementary uh, relationship that forms is a different molecule than with another group. And so you have yeah, to let that first start writing with someone, I always used to say it was a bit, a bit like dating. Yeah. yeah. You have to try and convince them that you're not an idiot. Yeah, because different people bring out different things, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you can take different roles. For example, when I was with Chapman, um, I was the one in the engine room moving it along and, and again pressing. And he was the one sitting there staring out of the window, puffing at his pipe and coming up with marvelous things every two and a half hours. <laughs> And it's slightly like that now, actually. I've slightly reproduced that when I'm working with my uh, my daughter. And now we briefly pause to thank this sponsor for this episode of the ID10T podcast, Squarespace. It's domains, it's websites, it's an online store they might want to make. It's a, a marketing tools to market any and all of those things, all right? From start to finish, Squarespace is going to totally have you covered. It's consistent content from website to email, because guess what? Now they have email campaigns as well. So it's literally everything that you need to create and promote the thing that you want to create. It's it's just an idea that you have or a product, uh, anything that you want to share, if you want to blog or publish any kind of content or sell products or services. Um, it's beautiful templates created by world-class designers, very powerful e-commerce functionality so you can sell anything and then customize it to your heart's content. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. And you can also buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions and then analytics that are going to help you grow it all in real time. So literally everything that you need, please uh, head over to squarespace.com slash ID10T for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code ID10T to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T podcast, which we now return to. Well, I first of all, I, as before we get back to the book, I just want to say that, um, uh, and I hope it's okay to mention this, but at least two or three times a year, I watch your eulogy at Graham Chapman's funeral, and it's one of the most incredible, heartfelt, but beautiful and legitimately hilarious moments in the history of comedy for me. I mean, it's... Isn't that marvelous? It, Go on. I'm yeah. curious. Well, because it's clear that you adored him, but it's also clear that because you adored him, you took the opportunity to be the first person to say fuck at an English funeral. <laughs> and and it's it, it's just that moment of the perfect amount of reverence and tension. And then the second you drop the F-bomb, the entire chapel explodes with laughter. It's just such a, it's, it, and knowing the relationship that you had with him, or at least what I think I know of it, it's a beautiful tribute. I feel like that's exactly what he would have, he never would have forgiven you if you hadn't done that. Exactly right. And everyone in that audience, because it was not a huge public occasion, it was just people who knew Gray. Uh, everyone in that audience knew <laughs> that he, that's what he would have wanted. 
you know? Yeah, it was lovely. It was a when, lovely moment. And particularly the he is no more, he has ceased to be. Yes. Extraordinary when I realized that, that I could do that stuff that I'd written with him. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. It's yeah. so wonderful. And that, you know, again, that obviously when you were just to take it back to the process of creativity, when you were writing that, did that go through several drafts or was that something that you just felt? I was putting it off. I was putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, which I don't do now. I I get first drafts down very fast, not because I think I'm going to use much of them, but it just, it's the first step in starting the process. It's like saying to your unconscious, Hey guys, I got another, another job for you. It's something to do with this. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But in those days, I put it off. One of the difficulties was I found there were things about Graham that were very, very difficult. I mean, he was a fantasist. And I never quite knew what he was going to say about our relationship. Mm -hmm. Because if he was in the wrong mood, he could have said something quite cutting and unkind. Uh, So I was never totally trusting of him because he was, as I say, he was genuinely a fantasist, you know. After after the group broke up, Gray told me, um, the, the, the guy who did the finances for the group told me that every three months uh, uh, an accountant would ring up asking to see all the figures because Gray had uh, convinced the accountant that he'd been swindled. Oh, my gosh. And then uh, they would give them all the figures and those accountants would go away and three or four months later a different set of accountants. Oh, my God. <laughs> So he was quite sure there was more money somewhere that the pythons had squirreled away or that someone had squirreled away. And of course, it was a fantasy because he never did anything very successful apart from pythons. Right. So I was always a little worried about what he would say because he'd recounted one or two things that had happened between us that were just insane. I mean, insanely wrong, you know, it was worse than Trump. And uh, so I was always a little watchful. But when I got the idea of it, it just seemed to hit the right note. It was I was able to talk about my affection for him, Um, but also to to do so in such a way that I was not uh, making one of those completely saccharine eulogies. Do you see what I mean? Right. I mean, Michael Palin did a wonderful thing. He told how Graham Chapman would arrive. Uh, this was at the service. He told how Graham Chapman would arrive every morning. Uh, no, he would arrive at Graham's house to give him a lift in the car, and Graham would never be up. He'd have to ring the doorbell till he woke him, and Graham said, oh, sorry, Mickey, uh, leaning out of the window. I'd be down in five minutes, and he was down in 35 minutes. Michael would <laughs> sit there reading the times because he knew this was what was going to happen, and then eventually Graham would come down 30 minutes late, and they'd drive off. And Michael said at the memorial service, he said right at the end of his talk, he, he mentioned that, and then he said, "I but I like to think that Gray is actually here with us now on this occasion. And he looks at his watch and says, well, he will be in about 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) One One of the greatest jokes. And affectionate and absolutely about Gray, who was in another world most of the time. Anyway, we've got sidetracked. But no, it's a beautiful, it was a wonderful sidetrack, and I'm glad we were able to talk about it. I Where I was kind of bouncing around was just about the idea process, and earlier I had said, oh, there's this romantic idea that you have these perfect free form, perfectly formed ideas, and you just spit them out on the page. And as I've gotten older, I realized, like, no, it's, there's the, it's really an unromantic process where you just show up every day, you do the work. Some days are better than others, and you just push through it. And that's that was one of very, the very well I got put. out of the book. You see, there are there are examples of people who've written plays in very short period of time. I think that Noel Coward wrote one of his plays. I think it was the one about the actor writer Gary Essendine, but I can never remember the title of it. And he wrote that one, or, or one very like it, in two two days. But of course, 
what's obvious is he'd been thinking about it for a year. Right. And if you're thinking about it, like I'm thinking a moment about the cannibal comedy, it's, it just grows a little bit without my having to put much down on paper. So that's how Noel Card can write a play in two days. If you're thinking about it all the time, then your unconscious is writing it for you as well. You know, if you're really sitting at a desk and writing it, whether well, your unconscious is also helping you, but not uh, in the same massive way that it might if you were handing it all over to it. I'm really interested to read the book that you reference in there about the harebrain and the tortoise yeah. mind. You get a lot out of reading that. I really yeah. recommend it. I, I go back to it all the time. Guy Claxton, very nice guy. Yeah, because it it's the idea that uh, I think a, a lot of us sort of assume what seems intuitive is like, oh, when you're you have you know when you're writing, you're really focused on something, and not trusting enough that everything that's going uh, on outside of our realm of conscious thought is actually still working and that we have to trust that and understand like, well, if you feed it and you'd kind of let it be, it will spit out the answers, but you can't make that happen. You have to allow that to happen. And also it'll spit out an answer and you then have to, you, then you have to wake up the conscious critical verbal analytic part of our brain and say, right. all right, now it's your turn. You have to assess whether this is any good or not. And one of the good things about uh, Hairbrain Tortoise Mind is there's so many examples from Nobel Prize winners illustrating exactly what we're saying. So it's not just about creative writing or even the creative arts. It's, it's about uh, any kind of creativity, including very difficult thought in physics. Right. Well, yeah, because you, you, I, you, you cite that famous example of Edison who would fall asleep with ball bearings in his hands to just get into that in between. Yeah. yeah. And then they, the ball bearings would fall when his hand would, would relax and he'd wake up and he'd have some inspiration. And there were multiple times in the book where I would say, you know, I even made a note of like, this sounds like transcendental meditation. And then you would say, yeah. oh, it's very much like meditation. But just that idea of delving deeper into the subconscious mind and pushing pushing all of the nagging thoughts that chew away at your brain when you're trying to quiet your mind. Yeah, that's right. Oh, the uh, first thing you do when you sit down to write, uh, you know, is you think, oh, Christ, I should have called so-and-so. It's the first thought, you know? Yeah. And that's why I think so many writers, without realizing quite what they're doing, always postpone the moment of actually writing by sorting their socks, sharpening their pencils, tidying their desks, changing the pictures in the room round on different walls, anything <laughs> just to slowly leave the more fre frenetic way of living and getting into a quieter, slow way of thinking. And everyone does those things, and it doesn't matter what you do, but it's just about getting from one mode into another. But your solution for that was really interesting, which was to basically just write the things down on paper to basically, it sounds like, just give them a physical manifestation so that they'll leave you alone. It's almost like, here you go. I'm right. You engineer. don't have to remember them. You don't have to carry them in your mind because you just write Tom and five minutes later you think birthday present for the hamster. You know, you just write them, then you can fed about them. It's like clearing your mind out. You know? well, I'm curious, what is the hamster getting for his birthday this year? I can't, I can't remember what he got last year. New wheel. He's getting a new wheel. Uh, <laughs> new wheel. And the, the hamster's going to be really... A, a new bigger, wheel, a better <laughs> wheel with an electric motor attached so that you can actually control the speed. <laughs> <laughs> then you're going to have to hire a hamster mechanic, come in and repair the wheel when it breaks. There's a whole... Of course, yeah. Just Technology, for... isn't it wonderful? And none of it works. <laughs> none so of it. It's pretty good. This is pretty good today. I'm, I'm all for this. Well, but yes. Can look we, each other in the eye, and that makes a huge difference to the amount of communication we're really having. I'm so glad to hear you say that, because sometimes I'll talk to people and they won't turn the video on, and they'll go, do I have to? And I go, no, you don't have to, but it's just, there's so much about communication that's nonverbal. It just sort of helps to see 
which directions to go, how it's, I mean, yes, we can have a phone conversation, but it, it's just, it's more yeah. pleasant and informative to be able to connect, at least. It reminds me, I, had, I knew an Oxford psychologist called Michael Argyle, and Michael said that the way that we speak is that at the beginning of the sentence, we look at the person, and then as we're expounding your idea, you look away, and then you come back to them. Mm-hmm. To check you in. See? And they do that. Meaning, mm -hmm, meaning, I've got what you said, you can go on. Right. And if you don't get that, then the natural thing to do is to say, what do you think about that? Or did that surprise you? Do you see what I mean? You can yeah. only do that if you're seeing someone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I found it very difficult. I did a couple of these where I couldn't see the people and there was a three second delay when I did for NPR. Oh. They're always on about the fucking quality of the sound. Well, what matters is the quality of the conversation, you know. It's technology always takes over from because the technic people, technological people always think it's more important than anything else. So um, that's that was a good example for me that there was a three minutes, three second silence every time I finished something and I kept thinking, have I offended her? And it was just the technology. So it was less fluent than it usually is. Well, uh, I just find that conversation is really the best. Like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm really an interviewer. You know, I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian. I just like to talk to people. And I also am just forever curious about the processes of things, particularly this, because I, I really love the idea that it's not about just instantly being creative, but you really paint this picture that you have to like set the table for creativity yes, and create sir. a distraction free environment. You know, like you, you, you have to make it, you have to set yourself up to for, for success. That's right. You have to, you have to find it. It was, well, you see, a psychology professor said to me, if you're sad, you have sad thoughts. If you're angry, you have angry thoughts. Uh, if you want to be creative, you want to have creative thoughts. You want to be in a creative mood, not a sad one or an angry one, just a creative one. And a creative one, I think, is a pretty relaxed one. And I think when you really put pressure on people, uh, they're more likely to come up with a stereotypical answer because that's what stereotypical thinking, it's quick, uh, but it's not original. Right. And I once asked Robert Town, one of the great screenwriters, you know, yeah, like Chinatown, I said, what happens, you know, when something's not right with a movie and, and you've got to come up with a solution at short notice, a lot of time pressure, you know, how does that change your thinking? And he said, no, I just pretend there isn't any time pressure. <laughs> That's really interesting because I feel like I need the time pressure to produce better results. Like when I have shows well, coming no, up, I, I think you need the time pressure because it forces you to put your ideas down. Right. Otherwise, you'd go on in that lovely creative phase where you're not quite sure if all the ideas hang together. <laughs> Right. And then at a certain point, you have to put them down. And that's where you realize that that doesn't work with that. You've got to change that, you know. And, but that's okay. Because you, you never, you know, the moment when you think it's absolutely wonderful, that never comes back. <laughs> <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
How do you think, how does perfectionism figure in? I, I think perfectionism is the enemy of art. I uh, think you're right. And uh, because it's where the judgment, the criticism, the critic criticism comes from. Perfectionism is about result-oriented thinking rather than process-oriented thinking. And uh, but yet I find that it is like one of the biggest dragons that a lot of people, myself and a lot of people that I know have to slay is to just push that perfectionist idea out of the way to just like just get it down and then you can whittle away at it. How do you how, is that something that you well, wrestle with? Uh, yeah, I, I had the same problems you used to. And I often think it's very bad if you want to write. The worst thing to do is to study English at university because you start writing and then you do the first sentence. You think, ooh, that sounds a bit like Thomas Hardy. So you throw that sheet again and then you write. <laughs> you say, oh, no, that's D.H. Lawrence. Right. You can't move. So my, my feeling about, uh, about perfection is by all means seek it, but seek it over a long period of time and a lot of rewrites. Right, right. And mm -hmm. the idea And, and of, get something down. Just get anything down. Just get it get out and don't judge down. it. Like in uh, Holy Grail, we threw away 90% of the first draft. Oh, my gosh. And how many drafts before you shot it? Well, I think once we realized, you see, we didn't know what it was about. And then Michael Palin wrote the scene with the coconuts and that <laughs> stupid conversation with the guy on high on the castle walls. But where did you get the coconuts from? <laughs> Which is about nothing at all. But we, when we saw that, we thought that's what the film is. Do you see what I mean? Yes. I mean, we had other material in that Chapman and I wrote about somebody who was buying ants at the ant counter in Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with medieval England at all. But once we saw what Michael had come up with, we knew, and then we threw away 90% of it. But I think if that's what you do, get stuff down and don't worry if it's not terribly good because you come back to it. It's very easy the next day to say, well, that isn't any good. Right. But that bit's actually quite good. It could right. be better. Maybe we'll change the ending. And that idea I had at the end of the day, that looks like something worth working on. But you just get something down, get yourself started. Otherwise, you're sitting there paralyzed by the feeling that you might do something that's not totally perfect. That's why I say there's no such thing as a mistake when you're being creative. That's a great way to think about it because it if you between that or if you just allow if you say to yourself i'm going to allow myself to suck for a bit it's just going to be okay it's not going to be great and that's fine it's all necessary you know to just unlock everything yeah that's right that's quite right i love the idea of i know you keep looking over to the right what is it that you're looking at there oh I, so this is something i never do because I never know where these com these podcast conversations are going to go. This is the huge list of notes that I made <laughs> to remember from your book, which I just titled Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide by John Cleese. And it's just all of the notes that I would stop and jot down as I was reading the book. There's notes like new ways of thinking about things, create circumstances, become creative, start to work at bedtime for morning revelations, trust your subconscious mind. I tied that into how... I've been taking piano lessons and I can practice fine. And then once my teacher starts watching, I forget how my hands work because I'm so consciously aware of what I'm doing. That's right. Uh, yeah. So I've, I found it helpful for that. Get so the reason you have to do it, the reason you have to do it is you're teaching your unconscious, endlessly, slowly teaching your unconscious to do it for you. Right. Right. And I also wrote down, get enjoyably absorbed in a puzzle. Uh, because you were talking about the idea of like children and when they play and when you're really, when you really allow yourself to play in something and that as people tend to get older or more expert at things, they become more rigid because they are in a sense, um, it's sort of overpowered by their own st structure. Yes. I think that's right. Because what happens is you think I do a speech called why there is no hope. And there's a not very good version of it out on the internet. I will redo it. But one of the things I say is 
that just repeating something day after day after day doesn't make you better at it unless you're trying to get better. It's, it's, if you're noticing the areas where you're not quite so good and you make a conscious effort to work on those areas, that's how you get better. But it's because you're looking to improve. You know, I play myself at chess at night in my little computer, just 15 minutes. I am terrible at defending against knights. Mm -hmm. I can never see they're going to fork me. You see what I mean? Yep. Terrible at that. But at least I know that's my weakness. And that makes me more vigilant. So if you acknowledge a weakness, then you can immediately start to work on it. But if you think, no, I'm really good at this now, and I really don't have anything else important to learn, that's the level you'll stick at for the rest of your life. Yeah, but there's also the other side of that is something that you say sort of toward near the end of the book. And by the way, we're not giving too much away. People should still read this book. Oh, that's all right. But the idea of uh, don't be too precious with ideas too, the idea of kill your darlings where you say like, Look, you know, everyone has, everyone has, every comedian has a joke that you think this joke is amazing. I love it. And then you get so attached to it because it's so precious, but then it doesn't necessarily fit the structure of where everything's evolving. And you have to be willing to go like, it's just a joke. I can let it go. I'm trying to force a square peg into a round hole. I, that idea I thought was fantastic. Well, I'm, I used to know Bill Goldman, you know, wrote Butch Cassidy. Yes. And he told me that, that, and he quoted that, said it was from William Faulkner. But I can think of a good example of that because there's a 40 time episode about a guy who actually dies. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that one? No. All right. Well, he dies. And Basil. Oh, but goes, you say Faulty Towers. Yes, 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 yes. Of course, yes. of course, I've seen yeah. Faulty Towers. Yes. And uh, what, what Connie and I wanted to do was to establish the guy who died had a twin. So that at the very end, <laughs> after Basil prayed, he got rid of the, <laughs> the twin would walk in. And I think you could have played 60 seconds on Basil's expression. <laughs> How do you tell the twin that his brother's dead? See what I mean? But so where does the, you know, the idea of just sort of getting stuff down on paper and then I kind of wonder, is it better to write the most obvious jokes first so that you have a tether to figure out like, okay, what's the other angle on this? Can I go deeper down this rabbit yeah, hole? Yeah. And allowing yourself to write kind of hacky jokes first and then working from there. Yes, that... why not? Put it all down. As you might suddenly think, no, it's too corny. I can't use that. But you may think, well, at the moment, I can I can change this. Gray and I had a corny sketch about a secondhand car dealer, and we got rid of it and wrote the same sketch about a dead parrot. <laughs> you see? It was exactly that. We thought, this is too corny. How do we make it? Because we like the character of the shop owner who would never say there yeah yeah you're right it's dead <laughs> <laughs> so you can yeah you can kick it out or you can use it and improve it or you may spark another thought up but what i feel is and this might surprise you i don't write on a computer i do emails but if i'm trying to be uh, creative then i get a huge artist's pad, sketch pad. Uh -huh. I don't know if you can see me, but I mean, yeah. one of those that's that sort of size, you know. And then I get the idea for the opening scene, top left-hand corner. I get an idea of the end scene, bottom right-hand corner. And then as I come up with ideas, I write them in there and I write them in with pencil. So if I suddenly think, oh no, that goes better there, I do that. It's so simple. I'm never scrolling backwards and forwards or trying to find things. That's genius. You're mind mapping, basically. You're, you're yeah. having it's a visual exactly. representation of the flow of where you want to start and where you want to end. That's fucking brilliant. God damn it. I never I thought to put that. that. I should have put that in the book, shouldn't I? <laughs> Is it too late? Because it's exactly that. It's exactly that. I'm trying to go, think of the name of the guy who came up with mind mapping, but it was 25 years ago in England. 
And I can remember a little bit what he looked like. And I forgot his name, but I found it very helpful because the mind is not, doesn't, is not linear. The mind associates things like this. It doesn't go boom, 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 boom. Yeah. It's our job to take all of that stuff and make it boom, 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 because it's the narrative that really counts in a movie, you know. But I really do think there is a, I mean, I, I made the jump a handful of years ago. I was always a write in a notebook guy and I made the jump to just keeping everything in a notes program because it just was easier and easier to travel and sync devices and, and everything. But the, I haven't found, and maybe it's just because I grew up writing by hand, I still don't have quite the same experience typing that I do when I'm putting something into the physical universe and not the virtual, you know, one and yeah. zero. I like literally, I like the feeling of the lead against the paper. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the feeling of control that if I miss a letter, I just reverse the thing. There's this thing on the end, you go boom, boom, reverse the pencil and you're off again. I love the sheer simplicity. Do you think that when you talk about people who, as they get more rigid, they kind of encounter those roadblocks, they're stuck, they're not growing anymore. Is that, because uh, I think, you know, particularly with, with comedy, when we're young comics, I think a lot of young comics go, God, when I get older, am I not going to be funny? Am I going to forget how to be funny? Am I going to lose it? Is it just about, being willing to have new experiences, new stimulus. Yes, yes. Learning, 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 like any art, you'll never know it all. And provided you stay curious, the moment you think you really got it, aha, now I understand it. That's the moment when you start going downhill, I think. Because uh, I was very touched years ago, I read that Claude Monet, Monet, uh -huh. Uh, but when he used to go painting, when he was 80, <laughs> his hand used to shake at the beginning because he was anxious that he might not be able to do it today. <laughs> oh, wow. But and, he did it anyway. Uh, yeah, and that's what we do. When we go out, unless we just copy what we did before, which is safe, but completely unexciting, if we copy, that's fine. It's not, you know, it's safe. But you never come up with anything because you're copying. But the moment you start not to copy, you're taking a jump into the unknown. And that's a little bit scary for us because human beings basically like what's familiar. You know what I mean? Yeah, they want predictability and familiarity. Yeah. and That's why we're all fundamentally conservative. We don't like too much change. But I, but I, but that is a really interesting idea to me because I, I would, you would think, you know, the, the older you get, the more you might seek safety because you just don't want to feel any discomfort. And I do feel like art does come from some discomfort, but if you've, if you've gotten to a point in your life where you've survived a lot of discomfort, you'd think you'd go, well, I've survived everything so far, so I'm probably going to be okay. But you actually do the opposite where you go, I don't want to feel any more discomfort. So I'm just going to seek this little safety That's bubble. Right. And that's they where it is. Yeah, cognitive dissonance, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, that's all it is. But, I mean, the whole question is, uh, are you emotionally attached to your ideas, or are they, as any good scientist should be, are all your ideas provisional? Because I don't know if you know Karl Popper. No. He says you can never, well, he's a philosopher of science. He was originally from Vienna, first language, German, London School of Economics. I think the best writer in the last century on, on uh, science. And he basically said you can never know anything for certain. I mean, 250 years, everybody thought Newton was right. 250 years. And then Einstein came along and said, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then Niels Bohr came along and said to Einstein, sorry, and Einstein says, I don't like your quantum physics. I don't think it's right. God does not play dice with the universe. And yet, <laughs> Einstein was wrong. So you, you're only ever moving towards perfection, and that's a decent, but don't think you've got to start with it or that you're going to get there. You just make it as good as you can. And there's a point when you have to say to yourself, 
I have to stop trying to improve this because when I first started BBC Radio, I had a mentor and you, he said to me once, John, you've improved this so much, it's getting worse and worse. <laughs> uh, but that's just experience, right? At a certain point, you get enough experience where you can kind of trust your gut I mean, it's a little weird with stand-up because even if you think a joke is great, you won't really know it until you do it in front of an audience. But, but in general, if you're writing a screenplay, like you, you, you do get a stronger sense of what is going to work and what's not going to work. Yeah, as you go further along, because as you, when you first think of a character um, and you start to write the character, you suddenly you write a line or a couple lines, you think, that's, that's right, that feels right. Then you write another line, you think, no, that's not quite what he'd say. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And it's the same with an actor who's trying to develop a character, that you try something, you say, oh, that felt good. And slowly you assemble what the character is and you get more and more clear about what the character would do and what it, he or she wouldn't do. Right. You see what uh, I mean? And I think that we do that internally with our characters and just occasionally we find a character then who takes the takes it over because it starts he almost starts writing his own part. I know a lot of novelists who say this sometimes happen. They suddenly find one of the characters <laughs> <laughs> He's off doing his own. He knows what he has to do, and they start writing it down. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I wonder, do you ever wonder like what kind of lawyer you would have been? It's just hilarious to me that that a lot of people in comedy kind of know from an early age, oh, I'm obsessed with comedy. I want to go into comedy. And then in this book, you say, no, I was, you know, I was studying law and then I just basically tripped over the footlights and discovered this group. And then that completely took you down the path that was your life. Yeah, that's right. That's quite right. And I, I'm still wondering what I'm really going to do with my life. Uh, to what? what uh, I think my real aim is, I, I know this may surprise you, but I have studied it. And most people who poo-poo this hasn't, haven't studied it. I think that some of us get an afterlife. Right. And I'm really interested in that stuff. And I would like to do, before I die, four shows, one hour, about the evidence for an afterlife. That's what would I would really like that. Using humor, but still with a very serious intent along with the humor. I don't see why someone wouldn't let you do that. Why don't you do that? Because I can never find a television executive who knows what they're doing. I have pitched that idea to Netflix and they weren't interested. I, I know. Someone out there has got i mean is there a way that you can do a a a less produced version of it in the interim as a proof of concept yeah i mean i'll i'll get round to this my life's been dictated for 10 years by the fact i don't have any money left after my third wife skinned me uh-huh and that's why i've been doing a lot of stage shows because though i enjoy it but i'd rather be writing 
I find writing more exciting and more challenging. Going out and doing the performance is lovely because the audience laughs and you feel good and you feel you've given them a good evening's entertainment. But 15 seconds after I'm off stage, I've forgotten about it. I think, how was that? Was it good? Were they happy with it? Good, great, good. End of thing. You see what I mean? Yeah. This... And that's, that's all it is. Whereas if I was doing a, trying to write something showing the evidence. And one of the things that infuriates me about scientists is they, I have a friend who was a psychiatrist and he was talking to someone who suddenly started produce uh, information that they couldn't possibly have known. And he told Carl Sagan about that, who was a friend. And Carl Sagan simply said, it couldn't have happened. Now, what he means is we don't have a theory that would explain that. Not we, it couldn't have happened, just we don't have a theory to explain that. You see what I mean? Yes. And the people who, who, who uh, sort of put the dead hand of conventional thinking on us are all are the people who say we know that this to be true. And they think that science, for example, is, is a, a particular set of beliefs. It isn't. It's a method of inquiry. And the data is always primary to the theory. You don't go from the theory to the data. You go from the data to the theory. And most of them go from the theory to the data. It couldn't have happened. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Yes, yes. But, but the idea that you're willing to say we don't... I, I feel like a lot of people aren't willing to say we don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They want to know. I mean, this little speech I do about why there is no hope, it's all about people wanting to be right. Right. We say, well, you know, they don't really know much about what they're talking about. They were, and they would admit that, they don't know, but they want to be right. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Of course. That's that whole, that's that whole kind of Dunning-Kruger study, you know? I'll tell you one other thing that really depressed me once. I was talking to, and I've got to get his name right, a very, very famous biologist. And he wrote something to do with the shale, the Greenwich shale. And Richard Dawkins was there. And he was probably the only biologist who was more famous than Dawkins. And he's now dead. And he wrote a lot of books. Anyway, we'll think of him in a moment. And I was lucky to be sitting next to him for dinner. And I asked him, you know, I said, what are you doing? And he told me in considerable detail about the next four books that he was going to write. Very interesting. And then I said to him, now, if, if God said, sit down, um, you can ask me one question. What would you ask him? Is there anything that you just would love to understand that you don't? And he said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you see, that's funny. That's hilarious because the the sort of like yeah. the, the arrogance of the no, really not one. There's not one fucking not one question. <laughs> even if it's like, what happened to that sock that I couldn't find? Like, just one question, you know. Even if it's not of global importance, not one. But I often I often wonder if there's that sort of, you know, that delineation between like arrogance and empathy is that, you know, if uh, when faced with something like an arrogant person will immediately give you their opinion, but an empathetic person will ask you a question. And, you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, but there's I think a lovely quote from Richard Feynman. I should check it out because it's beautifully phrased. But what it basically says is he would rather be a person who was interested in things than someone who was pretending he knew more than he did. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I didn't know he played the drums. I saw I read that in your book. He was a drummer and it like the drummer helped like free up his mind. That's right. That's the well the greatest book I've ever read. Um, and it's quite a big one. It's called The Master and His Emissary. Okay. The master and his emissary. 
And it's written by Ian, which is spelled the Scottish way, I-A-I-N. Okay. Mc, M-C, Gilchrist, G-I-L-C-H-R-I-S-T. Great. And what that is about, he's an extraordinary man of the kind of learning one just doesn't, it's inconceivable to think that he has a mind like that. Inconceivable. But, um, sorry, I was thinking about something I read last night. But uh, he, uh, he basically feels that our two hemispheres, you know, because we have two hemispheres of the brain, uh, that although they're intimately interconnected and it's very difficult to figure out how they do connect with each other, as they do have slightly separate personalities. They're about two different ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And we live in a, uh, uh, since the Enlightenment, we've been in a culture that's too influenced by the left brain. The left brain loves to be right. Mm-hmm. The right brain doesn't really mind. And so naturally, the left brain rather tends to dominate the right brain when you're arguing. You see what I mean? And Ian thinks really what we have to do is to get a balance back between the two hemispheres. And ever since I've read that book, I see it. It's why critics think that they're really rather more important than the writers of the books that they focus their criticism on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, the the left side of the brain can kill things like a gut feeling, feelings yeah. in general, intuition. It it's second. It's the second guesser. You know, it's it's it just it's terrible. An overactive, you know, left left brain is is really not great news. No, no, and this is why a lot of people who are great intellectuals are not particularly happy. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Uh-huh. I I totally understand, and I I really hope that you're able to. Even if you put on the shows about the afterlife as a live show, or as a as a as a as a TED talk or something, uh, I feel like there are opportunities there. And I feel like once you got it up on its feet, sometimes it's hard for people to conceptualize what you have in your head. And, oh, yeah. and so I just think if you were to just figure out how to start getting some of it out, I think that would solve a lot of the issue. I I didn't. I would. I was surprised. I was delighted and surprised to hear that you have this thought about the afterlife. I think I would have assumed that you were very much like, no, nah, there's nothing. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. But there is. It does seem like that you have like a. Yeah. Well, I put it to you in a simple sentence because this could be a TV series too. Just because the church churches have fucked it up, <laughs> it doesn't mean they didn't start with something interesting. <laughs> 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 That's fantastic. I just have adored talking to you. Um, fun, haven't we? I've really, 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 really enjoyed your book. Do you have children and wives and those sort of things? I'm married. I've been married for four years. We're just about to head down the path of uh, attempting to create a, a, a human being. You're quite sure you want to do this. <laughs> I don't know if anyone ever feels like they're ready or if it's like the right time. So yeah. I'm just kind of... You just of... have to know it's the one irreversible decision. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> Otherwise, if in a year's time you hate each other, you can get uh, divorced and was really... The downside is very small. <laughs> <laughs> but Once if you, you have one of those little things, your life is not your own. You know what's interesting, and I do know that, and I also feel like there's some relief in that. You know what I mean? Like the ability to to have to have another being in the house so that I cannot focus on myself all the time. I think that would be kind of a relief, to be honest. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it may be an age thing. It may be an age thing. I mean, I think the best thing about I ever heard about children. I had a philosopher friend called Steve Erickson who taught philosophy of Pomona. And he went to hear an Indian mystic, a woman of great spiritual development. And somebody asked her in the audience, is is it good to have children? And she said, oh, yes. They make you less selfish. Yes. And I think that's really important <laughs> because especially 
if you're an over if you're an overactive thinker and you're very left brain and you're in your own head all the time, if you're an artist who self generates, you know, it's sort of like why I wonder like why a lot of why a lot of che- I played chess in grade school. I played competitive chess, and it kind oh, of fucks you. you. Yeah, and it kind of fucks you up. And then and then I feel like not all, but some of the grandmasters I feel like get a little weird as they get older. And I wonder if that's I just think like they're in their own fucking heads all the time. Like they're just in you shouldn't be Yeah, but if you're aware of that, you're all right. Yeah, well I I hope so. But uh look, I know we're out of time, uh, but again, I really appreciate this. All right, my love. Thank that you, was man. fun. Good to see you. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Great pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye. The end. ID Tenty scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, listeners, it's Will Arnett. Our podcast, Smartless, has crossed a milestone that seemed unfathomable when we started nearly four years ago as we've just released our 200th episode. Join us as we welcome the dynamic duo of hilarity, Steve Martin and Martin Short. You've seen them on screen together in The Three Amigos, Father of the Bride 1 and 2, and most recently, and Only Murders in the Building. Both are comedic geniuses in their own right, but together they are always electric. And this episode of Smartless is no exception. I don't know if I've laughed more in a single episode than this one. We discuss their career arcs both separately and as a comedy team, how they met, who is more difficult to work with, and what motivates them today. Is Steve a better banjo player than Marty as a singer? Find out on this bicentennial episode of Smartless. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Plus, you get to hear Sean cry. What a loser! 